Amen. All right, so we are back in the Gospel of John. We've been back in the Gospel of John for the last few weeks here, and we're continuing in the Gospel of John. And so uh, before we get into the Gospel of John, uh, I want to do something that's a little bit of a risk, and you'll see why in a minute. But I want you to imagine you are a historian. I want each of you to imagine that you are a historian. Not only are you a historian, you're a historian on a team of historians, and this team of historians have been given the task to study the local American church, specifically this local American church, okay? And so you're on a team of historians that, are, that has been tasked with studying this local American church. To make it even a little bit more interesting, imagine you're not a Christian. Imagine you're not a Christian, and you're, you're not a Christian, and you're a historian studying this local church, and you as a historian, you've been given the specific task to write down all of the things that you see us doing, to write down every single action you see us as this local church doing, the things you see us actually doing. And this is the risky part, is I'm going to have you guys shout out different things that if that was your role to write down all of the things that, that we were doing, what are the things that you would write down? And so this, there is class participation. I, I know this is hard for most of us because uh, not everybody grew pe- up Pentecostal like I did, but uh, it, it will be okay, okay? So class participation If you're a historian looking at this local church, you're looking at all the things that we do, the actions we take, what do you write down? What are the things you write down? Foster care and adoption? RCs, redemption community, small groups? Service, serving? Sunday morning worship? What else? Music, we play music? Prayer, second Saturdays, Roots Lunch. That's good. We do all those things, right? We do all those things. Okay, so we do all those things. That's a, that's a good smattering of things. Now, if you're a historian, remember, a non-Christian historian studying this church, and you've been given the task to write down all these things, I also think you'd probably write, well, they all gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. They all sing together. They all take communion together. And you would say all of these different sorts of things that we do, all those things you guys said uh, were right too. Now, the second part of your task as a historian is to look at all those different things that that you've written down that we do, and you have to come up with a, a word or a phrase that describes all of those things. Like your job is to say, hey, how are all of these things connected? Now, I'm not going to make you shout this one out, but you as a historian, are, are, you have to come up with, okay, how are all these things connected? And so you're sitting in your room, and remember, you're not a Christian, so you're not probably thinking of us in the total positive light, but maybe not a negative light either. What, what's the phrase? You might, you might say, well, they're, they're religious, right? In the academic world, when people do the sort of things that we do, it's often called cultic. They're cultic. They have these activities and things that they, they do together. They break bread, they drink wine, and they re- refer to it as Jesus' body and his blood. Or you might say, hey, they're, they're spiritual. They're spiritual. They, they, they try to connect to God, who they say is spirit, but came in the flesh. And so they are in tune with their spirituality, and they're, they're spiritual. Or you might say they're communal. They do a lot of things together. They're trying to be together. They're communal. A lot of the things they do are communal. Here's what I hope 
what the historian could write about us. I, I hope that the historian could look at all these different things and say, the thing that links them all is they love one another. The thing that links them all is they love one another. Now, now the reason that I hope that the historian could write that we love one another is because Jesus seems to be obsessed with this idea that his people, his disciples, would not only love him, but love one another. That we, as the church, as followers of Jesus, would go out and we'd love each other. That we love humanity, that we love this body, that we would love one another well. And so I hope that if a historian studied us and, and began to write all those things down, I hope the historian could go, they love one another. I don't know if that's what the historian would write, though. I don't know if that's what they would write, because I, I, I look at my own life, and, I, and I'm trying to look at how a historian might write down the things I do, and I don't know if the historian would say, Anthony loves one another. Anthony loves others in his actions and what he does. And I, I so desperately want that to be how a historian could describe me and describe this church, because it seems so important to Jesus. It seems so important to Jesus that we love one another constantly through the last few chapters of John that we've been in. Jesus mentions how important loving one another is. Okay, and so today, here's what we're going to see. We're going to just be talking about love. We're going to be talking about love and, and, and four different things about love that love shows us from this passage that we're going to be in today. So we're going to see these four things. The first thing we're going to see is loving is abiding. The second thing we're going to see is love is sacrificial. The third thing we're going to see is God's love gives us a new identity. And then the fourth thing is love encounters hate. Okay, so that's where we're going today. Let's turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15 is where we'll be. We're actually going to go through the, the second half of John chapter 15, and we're going to um, get into a little bit of John 16 as well. If, if you're wondering where we've been at in the book of John, what's been happening in the book of John is this. Jesus is headed towards the cross. He knows this is going to be three of the hardest days in the disciples' life, and so he is preparing them for what's about to come. He's pouring out his heart to them. He's showing them immense uh, amounts of love so that they could be rooted in his love, and he's teaching them of what life will be like apart from him. And, and that is also teaching for us because Jesus ascends into the heaven and sends his spirit to live amongst us. And so we are seeing Jesus is kind of like some of the most important things to Jesus for his disciples so that they could get through life without a physical Jesus with them. And so last week in particular, what we saw was Jesus began to invite the disciples, not just invite, he commanded the disciples to abide in him. Jesus said he's the true vine, he's the source of life, and that his disciples are called to abide in him. And we found out last week that abiding is listening to Jesus' commandments and it's abiding in his love. It's both of those things. Today, in the passage that we're in, we're going to see that abiding is also something else. And I would argue that the way that Jesus talks about abiding today is almost Jesus' emphasis on what abiding should be. 
Okay, so let's start in John chapter 15. We're going to be verse 12. We're going to go through verse 17 to start. It says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Okay, the first thing that I want to pull from this passage about love is this. Loving is abiding. Abiding in Christ, staying in Christ, continuing in Christ. As we began to talk about last week, the way we continue in Christ, according to this passage, according to these verses, is to love one another. Verse 17 kind of spells the whole thing out. Did you you notice what Jesus said in verse 17? He said, I command all of this stuff to you so that, okay, why, why, Jesus? You love one another. Everything Jesus is saying about being the vine and his father being a vine dresser and abiding in his love and listening to his commandments, it all boils down to Jesus saying, why am I saying this? So you love one another. Abiding in Christ is loving one another. An active love of one another. I don't think we always think of abiding as loving one another. I think we often think as abiding in Christ as reading our Bible or praying. And I think it is those things. But sometimes we read our Bible and pray and we consider that abiding at the cost of not considering that loving one another is abiding. And it seems to be Jesus' emphasis here that he's saying all of this with the goal in mind that we would love one another. Church, if we want to abide in Christ well, yes, abide in his love. Yes, abide by listening to Jesus' commandments. But also, yes, abide by loving one another. By loving one another. This is what Jesus is commanding us to do. We as Christians are to be committed to love, committed to loving one another. I I, I wish the theoretical historian could come and look at us and describe us as a people that love one another because that seems to be so important to Jesus, that we love one another. And and listen, I, I I want us to have a true robust, biblical love, right? I, I don't necessarily even need a love that like kind of the culture says is love and, and this kind of watered down, not really love, love. I want a robust, biblical love for us that the world can see. I think too often when it comes to love, we kind of pick aspects of love, our favorite aspects, and usually it's just things our temperament, uh, is catered towards, and so we, you know, like some of us love truth-telling love. Like we love to 
and tell people the truth. And we're like, I'm loving that person because I'm telling them the truth. And it's at the cost of all these other sorts of love. Or some of us really like just kind of affectionate, kind love. And that's kind of how we define love. And, and that's at the cost of all sorts of other ways that the Bible defines love. Our love needs to be a truly biblical love. I'm going to read this quote from Paul David Tripp. I read it a couple months ago as well. Because I think Paul David Tripp does a good job here trying to define a holistic vision for what biblical love is. What it means to love like God. What it means to love like Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another. That does not demand repayment or that the person is deserving. I'm going to read again. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand repayment or that the person is deserving. If we, as the people of God, want to abide, want to continue in Christ, dwell in Christ, listen to Jesus' command to abide in him, we have to be loving. We have to have an active action-taking love in our midst. We have to love if we're going to abide. We have to love if we call ourselves disciples of Christ. We are called to love. And may, us, may we love the way that God invites us into loving. May we love the way that God shows us what is love. If you need help with that, go to 1 Corinthians 13. Go to 1 Corinthians 13. Read through 1 Corinthians 13 and see how the Apostle Paul defines all these characteristics of love. Love like that. If you're still not sure, go to the Gospels. Read throughout the Gospels and see how one of the most common emotions of Jesus is he wells up in compassion for people and then he does things about it. He loves, he sees people, then he acts and he helps, he does things. Look at Jesus' compassion and let it match our own compassion and let us live like Jesus. If that's not enough for you, go to Romans 12 and read through Romans 12 and look at this vision that the Apostle Paul has for how we love one another in all sorts of ways and that we even love our enemies. This is the sort of love we're called to. This is the sort of love that, that Jesus wants us to embody. Church, I don't want us to, admit, uh, to miss this, and it sounds like I'm repeating myself, and it's because I am. Abiding in Christ is loving one another. Okay? I think too often we get become so individualized and self-focused that we don't love one another. We focus on all these things internally instead of taking up Jesus' call to love one another. That's not what Jesus has for us. Jesus has formed a people that will love one another, that will abide in him, and one of the ways we abide is by loving. We can't miss this church. We, buy, we abide in Christ by loving one another. May, may, may that be us, church. Okay, the second thing that I want to pull from this passage is this. Love is sacrificial. Love is sacrificial. True Christ-like love is sacrifice. Jesus defines like the greatest way to love in, in what we just read as laying one's life down for a friend. 
Jesus knows he's about to present to the disciples with his life the greatest act of love the world has ever known. Jesus is going to the cross. He's going to willingly, joyfully go to the cross and die for the world's sins because he loves the world. But he wants the disciples to see that him laying his life down is the greatest picture of love. And when Jesus invites the disciples to love, he says, love like I've loved you. And Jesus' love almost always, if not always, involves sacrifice. Jesus was rich in heaven, one passage in the Bible says, and he made himself poor in order to reach us, in order to love us, in order to care for us, in order to take care of our sins. Jesus made sacrifices in order to love. Sacrifice is central to what it means for us as the people of God to love. Sacrifice is central to what it means for us to love. I think we, we live in this time where this idea of love being something where it is sacrifice for one another is kind of being uh, eroded. It's kind of being talked down to. Like it's saying, hey, if you have to uh, sacrifice or love hurts in some way for you to love or care for someone, you shouldn't do it, right? And a lot of times the, the language is kind of like self-love. You got to make sure you're self-loving first perfectly and wholly before you could step into any sort of love. And, and, and I wrestle with that because uh, Jesus seems to say his love is centered in sacrifice, and then I wrestle with it as well because a lot of my friends who have, have kind of spent their lives loving and they hear this message of self-love and they go, well, man, there feels like there's some truth in it. There feels like there's something good here about this message of self-love because I keep loving and loving and loving and it's sapping away my humanity, it feels like. And so in our culture right now, I think we're kind of in a rock and a hard place with this, or we have a tension with this because Jesus invites us into a sacrificial love, but then culture makes this point about self-love that I think has some validity to it because I think some people seem to be getting really damaged when they pour themselves out to others in love. And so what are we to do? What does it mean for us as the church to love in healthy ways, Christ-centered, spirit-empowered ways? I think we have to look at our love like this. I think we have to start to look at our love like giving money away, okay? And so uh, bear with me with this illustration. Hopefully it makes sense. But if someone came to me and they said, hey, Anthony, I know giving to the church, giving money to the church, it's something we do as the people of God, something the people of God has, have always done. I know that's really important. But Anthony, what I realized was uh, I can only give $10 a month. And $10 a month is not that much. And so here's the thing. I have a credit card. So what I do is every week I just take 100 bucks out of my credit card and I give to the church because I know giving is really important to God. And so I give to the church each and every week. And, and isn't that good, Anthony? And if that person came to me and said, I, say, I, say, I would say, no, that's not good. Go back to the $10. Like, I would say, you can't give of what you don't actually have, right? And then I'd say, let's, I think you need to go to some Dave Ramsey classes. And I, and I, I would say, listen, stop giving that way. You need to give of what you actually have, which is the $10, which God is pleased with. I think sometimes when it comes to loving one another, 
and loving people in this world, a lot of us are giving of what we don't have. We give of time we don't really have. We give of uh, giftings we don't really have. We give of energy we don't really have to the point where when we're loving people, there is irreparable damage happening to us. There are unhealthy ways to love. And I, I would argue that's probably not even true love in some sense. But there are unhealthy ways to love, where you are doing good things that Scripture calls us to, but because you, you are giving up of things you don't have, or you're ignoring all of the things that you are called to steward in your life. Well, which we're called to steward our time. We're called to steward our giftings. And I, w- I would also argue for those that, that feel really encouraged by, by the self-love message. One, some of you are, are some of the most incredibly loving people in the world, but I would push into this and say, hey, examine why you find yourself so often kind of like dying because you're loving people well. So often just completely drained and spent as you love people. I, I think you've got to examine what's going on in your heart. What's causing you to love in those ways? I, I would wager that there are uh, some idols there, some idols you're trying to worship, some idols of, of, of kind of like being needed, and when we love people a lot, there's this idol of, uh, that, that is served of being needed. And so I would argue that, hey, the reason why the message of self-love sounds so good to you is because when you love, you're actually loving in order to worship an idol instead of worshiping God. So examine that stuff in you. And the reason we all need to examine that and look at this stuff is because Jesus calls us to love how he loves. And his love involves sacrifice. And loving the way that Jesus loves is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly tough. Even when we give of what we do have, it's a sacrifice. It's painful. It can be hard. But that's what we're called to, church. We are called to a love that is sacrificial. It could be too tempting for us to go one way or the other. To go the route of going, well, this sacrifice is too hard, so I'm not going to do it. Or to go the other route of going, well, then I'm just going to love all the time in unhealthy ways as well. We need to f- figure out what God is calling each of us individually, leading by the Spirit, how, how he's calling us to love sacrificially. Love is sacrificial. Jesus' love is sacrificial. We are called to a sacrificial love. It can be too easy to define love however we want to define it and live into love one of those ways that we define it. We need to live into love the way Jesus defines it with his own life, a life full of sacrifice, a life full of him laying his life down. We are called to a sacrificial love. Love is sacrifice, church. May we love by sacrificing things in order to love well, for the well-being of others. All right? All right, next thing that I want to pull from these first few verses about love is this, God's love changes our identity. Did you notice what Jesus said there to the disciples? Part of Jesus' work, part of his work as their discipler, part of his work as someone who's come to restore all things, part of his work made these disciples friends. And, and the disciples of Jesus, Jesus, 
shows us clearly is anyone that listens to his commands. And so Jesus says that anyone that listens to his commands are his friends. You are a friend of Jesus. You are a friend of Jesus. He's not just your lawyer. Jesus is not just your lawyer who gets you into heaven. Jesus is your friend. Jesus has made you his friend. Think about that. Jesus has made you his friend. Have you ever had somebody who's important to you or kind of a bigger deal than you are or higher up in whatever totem pole you were part of reach out to you and really intentionally try to become friends with you and try to build a relationship and friendship with you? I have, and every time it's like, wow, this person is amazing. Like, this is amazing to be loved in this way. Jesus has done that in a far greater way. Jesus has made us his friends. God's love changes our identity. God's love changes us into friends of God. Me, Anthony, I'm a friend of God. Me, Anthony, cynical, doubting. Sometimes I just have such a problem with the way God does things. Sometimes I legitimately think I know better. Sometimes I think I can run the universe better than God. I have those sorts of thoughts. Me, Anthony, in spite of all of that, is a friend of God. You are a friend of God. You're a friend of Jesus. It could be really easy for us to just gloss over that, skip over that, but I, I couldn't. It's one of my favorite verses in all of, all of Scripture, that Jesus makes us his friend. Jesus is our friend. We can relate to him as a friend because he's made us his friend. Jesus is our friend. And we need to press into that. I would even argue to abide well is to understand the friendship we have in Jesus. And so as, as Jesus has made his friends, and as we listen to Jesus calling to love one another, and as we love by sacrificing, what we will see in our Jesus-centered love is love encounters hate in the world. Love encounters hate. So let me read the rest of this chapter in the beginning of chapter 16, and we'll, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said, the, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hours come in when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father 
nor me. Okay, let's stop there. So, Jesus gives all this beautiful picture of what it means to follow him, and and then he goes, and as you follow me, the world's going to hate you. Now remember, world is shorthand in the New Testament, and Jesus in particular uses the word world to say everyone in active rebellion against God. So when Jesus says world, he doesn't mean every single person out there, but he means every single person that's in active rebellion towards God. And he says that world, they're going to hate you. Jesus says, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. The ones that listen to me, they'll listen to you. And he says, they're all going to do this because they don't know God. Constantly throughout the Gospel of John, knowing knowing God seems to be key. And we know God through knowing Jesus. Jesus says this kind of confusing thing where he says his arrival pointed out their sin. So it kind of reads like almost like Jesus' arrival made them sin. But really what it did was Jesus' arrival on earth pointed out the sin in their hearts. They rejected God to his face. And Jesus said, my arrival showed that about them. And because they're the sort of people that reject God to his face, they're going to hate you guys. They hate me. They're going to hate you. To the point where they're going to hate you so much that they'll kill you and they'll think they're offering a service in the name of God. Which sidebar, church, which I wish I didn't feel like I needed to say, if you ever feel like you want to kill someone in the name of God, you're off the path, Christian. Don't do it. And so Jesus says there is this reality that the world is going to hate you. The world is actively going to hate you. And Jesus says, I'm telling you guys this so you don't fall away. So you can continue to abide in a sense. So you can hold on because being hated makes you want to give up. Being persecuted makes you want to give up. This is something that's true for the Christian. When we are faithful, loving witnesses to Christ, we we will be hated for it. We will be hated for it. Because the world hated Jesus. They will hate us. Now listen, we need to let the world hate us for Jesus and not for ourselves. I think some of us in here are hated for sure, but it's not because of Jesus. I think some of us are hated because of our worldly affiliations. I think some of us are hated in here because we often double down on our worldly ideologies when the world confronts us on those ideologies. Not Christ-centered ideologies, worldly ideologies. I think the world often hates us in the American church not because we're a faithful and loving witness to Christ, but because we're a faithful witness to our own egos. We're a faithful witness to our own desires. We're a faithful witness to our own hubris. I think that's often why the world hates us. So my call to us is we hear that Jesus says the world's going to hate us. Let the world hate us for Jesus. Let the world hate us for who Jesus is. I don't think right now the world hates us for Jesus very often. Listen, the reality is we will follow Jesus, and as we follow him, and as we have allegiance to him and his ways, the world will hate us for just even having an association with him. Jesus said this in John 7, verse 7. He says, hey, the world's hating me. Do you know why? Because I testify to it that its works are evil. 
the verses we forget to put on coffee mugs. This is what Jesus does. He shows where we are worshiping anything that's not him. And because we have an allegiance to him, an association to him, and we worship him with the totality of our lives, the world will hate us, but let them hate us for Jesus and not our own idiocy. Please. Right now I have a friend who sends me uh, a bunch of TikToks. And the TikToks this friend sends me are uh, usually former Christians, again, deconstructing their faith. We've talked about this a bit kind of beginning to doubt or deconstruct or not be a Christian at all anymore. And a good amount of the TikToks are kind of like, look at all of these American Christians and look at all of the worldly ideologies they're committed to that are so unchrist like And that bums me out. And I go, I don't like that. That's not good. We, sh- we need to be hated for Jesus, not for those things. But then now, there's been another set of TikToks that get sent to me at times. And there are people that grew up in the church, and they're walking away, and they're saying why they're walking away. And they're walking away because of things they fundamentally hate about Jesus. Things they just don't like about Jesus in his way. Things they don't like about who he is as a person, what he did, what he claimed. And to those TikToks, although they trouble me and they bother me, to those TikToks I say, at least they're hating us for Jesus. At least they're hating us for Jesus and not some worldly ideology. As we are committed to Jesus, the world's going to hate us. I would not be a faithful pastor if I didn't tell you that. Jesus stands into opposition of so much of what we just desire in our hearts, in our flesh, as the New Testament says, what we just want. Jesus stands in in opposition of that so often because Jesus actually has true joy for us. Jesus has true flourishing for us, but we've convinced ourselves in our sin that he doesn't. Jesus offers true joy and true flourishing And in our flesh, we oppose it, and the world opposes it as as well. But when the world hates us, let them hate us for Jesus. Let them hate us for Jesus, not for our own idiocy. Amen. Let them hate us for Jesus. So our love love is going to encounter hate, but let it be Jesus-centered, spirit-empowered love. So church, we, we are called to abide in Christ. What we've seen throughout John chapter 15, we are called to abide in Christ. And we see, to, we saw today that loving one another is abiding. We also saw that love is sacrifice. We can love like Jesus loves because we're friends of Jesus. And as we love like Jesus, we're going to encounter hate. But may we let Jesus' friendship help us to endure that hate. And may we love one another, church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this detailed discourse that we get we get that you gave to the disciples before you went to the cross i am continually getting encouraged by what you said to the disciples before you went to the cross i I am continually reminded of your calling on me and on this church 
on this body, on us as Christians. I'm continually, God, being formed in all sorts of ways. As I, as I look at what you say to the disciples. Jesus, thank you for your life. Thank you for your death. Thank you for the resurrection. Jesus, may we be a people that do these things, not just talk about these things, not just think about these things. God, help us to be a healthy church, loving well, committed to you, and that our love is rooted in worship of you, not in something else, not in trying to achieve something. God, we need you in order to do this well. We want to abide. We want to be your disciples. We need you, Lord. Amen.